Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the context of the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Heather Betridge. Associate Vice President of Practice Management Services at the Texas Medical Association. And this is Hot Topics, TMA's newest monthly podcast series with one of our favorite attorneys, Amanda Hill. Running a medical practice brings challenges for which medical school probably didn't adequately prepare you. While we can't rewind the clock and take you back to medical school, or your your residency or fellowship programs and build in all the need to know business of medicine courses into your training, TMA can introduce you to content experts like Amanda Hill. Amanda is a speaker, author, and well-known healthcare attorney who serves physicians and practices all throughout Texas. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Today we are talking about some sticky human resource issues. Most medical practices do not have a dedicated HR specialist and sometimes stumble into mismanagement pitfalls. I want to home in on some of the common issues we see when TMA's practice management consultants go into um, practices and and what physicians or practice managers should do or keep in mind when dealing with their workforce. So the first one, and this is one that actually came up recently, has to do with staff continuing to work after they clock out. Do you ever hear about this from your physician clients? Is this a bigger, more widespread problem? 
You know, Heather, it really can be, and this has come up with several of my clients, you really need to make sure that your staff understands that they cannot clock out and keep working because it can really cause the practice some headaches, including not only fines, but back payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. How does that play out? Can you think of a specific example? Like what is, what in reality, how does that look? Well, I did have an example. The most egregious one was a few years ago, and my client had a hardworking nurse that everyone really loved, including the doctor that she worked with. But she would always clock out, but just, you know, stayed around, putter around, finish things up. Everyone thought she was such a judicious and, you know, astute worker, and she was so friendly. And no one really thought a thing about it until two years later, when she said, oh, um, I think I'm missing some overtime. And then she came to work literally with a spiral notebook, actually multiple spiral <laughs> notebooks packed with these alleged hours that she had worked for the you know past year. And she claimed she wasn't paid for it. And the problem is it's really difficult for an employer to fight those allegations at the Workforce Commission. There's often you know, nothing you can do except to say, you know, we don't believe that this person did those hours. And the person says, well, I have this log and I've written them and, and they produce it. And that's taken as legitimate evidence. So sometimes the only solution is just to pay, but it's infuriating for the employer. And so I suggest that every employer, and I've told this to multiple clients, to have a policy that says that all the time that you work has to be submitted within two weeks of working or you lose the right to claim those hours because that's the kicker, right? You don't want a, an employee to go for a year and then say, oh, by the way, you owe me 350 hours because I've you know, written this journal of all these time entries. You also wanna say you know, very clearly in your employment manual, even if you have like an electronic timekeeping system, you can put a little statement on the, on the timekeeping system itself that says, you may not work off the clock. And then if you catch someone working off the clock, you can discipline for it. But it's really difficult to fight after the fact. So this is something you really want to be proactive about. Yeah, that's a good point. And not to mention, you know, a, a sign of misappropriation or embezzlement of staff constantly working and holding what they do and, and how they do it very close to their chest. That's, that's not a good sign. You know, speaking of pay, Exempt versus non-exempt status. Do physicians just decide, okay, you are exempt and you are non-exempt or how does that work? You know, Heather, I get a lot of questions about that actually. Um, no, it's not something that you would just determine based on what you think their duties are, right? I mean, employees that are considered exempt from the Fair Labor Standard Act must be paid a salary above a certain level and work in an administrative, professional, executive, computer, or sales role. But it's not the doctor or the group that makes that call. You know, the Department of Labor has what they call a duties test. And that can help employers determine who meets this exception. Um, they work, if you're exempt, you work as long as it takes to get the job done. There's no overtime pay, you get a salary, and you, know, you just sort of put in the hours it takes to get the job done. But non-exempt employees, however, are usually paid an hourly wage and they don't fall into that exempt role. So hourly employees that are non-exempt do get paid overtime if they work over 40 hours a week. And I mean, it's hard to get into all the specifics, but if you go to the Department of Labor's website, 
there is a fact sheet on there that can really walk you through the factors on whether is you know an employee should be considered exempt or non-exempt and i think it's really helpful to look at your staff you know let's say you have 10 staff members and think are we categorizing these employees correctly because employers just assume they know you know well they have manager in their title they're the office manager or the clinic director so obviously they're exempt but if workers don't meet the requirements in that duties test and they don't earn a certain amount per year or if they have certain deductions taken from their salary, they may not be eligible um, as the, to earn that title and they still can get overtime pay and they're misclassified. I think another point to mention, Heather, is like, who cares? You know, <laughs> so what if a doctor's like, blah, 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 who cares if they're considered exempt or non-exempt? But if they're misclassified, then that can really come back and hurt a practice because, you know, we were talking earlier about going to the Workforce Commission with your binder and arguing you worked a bunch of hours off the clock. Well, same thing in this case, you know, they can say, well, I was misclassified and I really should be considered non-exempt and I worked a ton of hours that I didn't get paid for. You know, one example is if you're an hourly employee and your doctor, you know, supervising physician or something text you at night saying, hey, I want you to look this up or what about this issue with this patient? That's work time and that needs to be compensated. So it's really important that you classify employees correctly and don't just assume they're just gonna do whatever it takes to get the job done because if they're hourly, they have to be paid for every hour they worked. And that's where employers start to get in real trouble, right? They just make a lot of assumptions. They don't think they, you know, the government really cares. And then there's a problem and there's a claim and I have seen this get nasty. And trust me, if you're in a war with the Workforce Commission, you know, you might win that case, but you're going to pay your lawyer and you're going to take up a lot of time fighting it. And it's just not worth it. Just classify them correctly from the beginning. And it saves you a lot of time. Okay. You often talk about rules and employees knowing the rules, making sure things are documented and so on. Is this where the practices employee handbook factors in? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, just find these employment manuals as almost like administrative headaches. You know, they go on the internet, they pull something down, they don't think much about it. They think, I guess I've got to have this document now that I run a medical practice. They don't really think about how important these employment manuals are and outlining the rules of the road for their practice. They're gold. I mean, this is an opportunity for an employer to say, these are the rules. This is the dress code. This is how important it is to be on time. This is how you handle leave. It's all right here in the manual. It, it always cuts down on the argument, right? That, well, I had no idea that I didn't, that I couldn't work off the clock, or I didn't have any clue what time I was supposed to be there in the morning. You know, this doe-eyed sort of you know, confused look that, you know, you face later when an employee does something that clearly everybody knows is not correct, but it's not written down. So if you have it all in an employment manual that you customize, it's not just some static document you print off at the beginning of your, you know, when you form your company and you never look at again, and you can really put things in there that help you as the employer. It's a rich opportunity for you to communicate to your staff the rules of your practice, and you can change it as time goes on so that it continually meets your needs. Right. And then be sure to actually hold staff accountable for what's in the handbook. Do you 
recommend that um, employee handbooks be written from day one when physicians start in practice, that it's a, a one and done resource that they can check it off their list? Absolutely. And in fact, it's, it's sort of a key document that outlines the rules of their practice. And it's imperative that they do it from the beginning, but they also organically change it as they go. I, I can't seem to impress upon my clients enough that you know, if you operate on sort of unspoken or unwritten policies, like, well, we don't really write that down, but, you know, everybody knows around here how things work. Everybody knows we can't, can't show your tattoos or that everybody has a half day off on Friday and everybody knows to put in their leave. You know, that's not really going to help you if you have a labor and employment claim later. And if things, especially like working off the clock, they can say, everybody knows that you can't just work overtime. You have to get permission. Well, no, they're going to argue, no, I didn't know. And so, you know, especially if you start to treat people unfairly or unequally, and then employees become really confused, you know, they start to think, wait a minute, why are the rules applied, you know, that way to these three people, but these other people, maybe with a different race or a different ethnicity, aren't treated that way. So I think in a way, it's not only a way to establish the rules of your practice, Heather, but it encourages sort of your employees to be comforted, right, to be confident that, the same rules apply to everyone. And, you know, even if you have a policy that let's say lunches are staggered for patient care or everybody shows up at a certain time or certain things have to be done within a certain time frame, it's all outlined for people to read. But just because you write it in there when you start, you might realize that that doesn't work for your practice over time. And I, I really don't like it when I see my clients create this employee handbook and then they think, well, that's done, box checked, move on, and they never look at it again. You know, you should review it yearly to see, are you leaving anything out? You know, maybe there's something you want to add in. Just recently, I had a client who realized that they didn't say anything about workplace dating. And they had two people in the workplace that started dating and it became uncomfortable and it was a potential conflict of interest. And of course, I said, what's in your employment manual? And they said, we didn't even think to add that. And so I said, well, it's never too late, right? You know, open it up, find a place in there where you can have some rules of the road about how to deal with workplace dating. So it's really not a one-time process. You know, you have to constantly maintain it, look at it, make sure it enforces not just your policies that are in line with the law, but your personal preferences on how you want your company to be run. Mm -hmm. So having a, a handbook with documented rules is just part of the issue. The other part is that employees have to be intimately familiar with what's in the handbook and make sure that they're not just aware of what the rules are, but that they understand them. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, when your company is sued for an, any employment related claim, like overtime compensation or discrimination or harassment, one of the very first things that the attorney is going to ask for you to hand over is the employee handbook, right? It's important because it is the de facto manual for your business operations, but it's also proof that you have communicated that to your staff in writing, right? So you want your staff to be intimately familiar with this rule. I mean, you don't want them to come to you later and say, you know, you're treating me differently and you're treating me with, you know, this horrible ill intent I mean, I had a doctor client who called me recently and said, I don't think my nurse practitioner should be taking any vacation in the first six months of employment, you know? And I said, oh, wh why would you say that? And he said, well, they need to put their head down and work and get to know the patients. And that's no time for, you know, a vacation. They just started. 
And the employment contract simply said they were entitled to, you know, three weeks of PTO or whatever it was, but that it was dependent on the group's policies. And then there was no policy about it. And so how would the person know that they couldn't take vacation in the first six months, right? They, they were only doing what they thought was under the contract, right? I was given vacation. Why can't I use it? So you want the employees to know that, you know, if there's a rule, like, for example, you can't take vacation within the first six months for certain patient care reasons, they have to be able to go find it somewhere. It's really not fair to expect your employees to just, you know, read your brain without it being written down. And, you know, if you don't have an employee handbook, not only are you confusing your staff because they don't really know what the rules are, but you've got nothing to hand over, you know, to opposing counsel. And if you don't have anything outlining the policies of your practice, you know, or if it's something that's so old and outdated and no one looks at, then it's really not helpful for you. And then they set the tone, meaning the employee that's disgruntled or their lawyer, they start to say, well, let me tell you what the policies are. It's what you're doing in practice and how you're treating these three people that work you know, over on the left side of the building. They get treated better. And so I think it's important for your protection, right? That you have this employee handbook, it's in writing, you have an employee acknowledgement page, they actually sign saying, yeah, I got this when I started and I've read it and reviewed it. And I think that's really important. If they don't sign it, you know, it's not critical, but you know, you always like to say, look, it's in the employee's file. They were aware of these rules, it was in the policies, and you can turn it over to, you know, the opposing counsel someday in a case. So I definitely think that it's really important to have your employees familiar with them. Okay, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about sexual harassment. Do you even hear about that these days? Yes. In fact, I had a client sexual harassment case that just happened and it was absolutely miserable. I can say nothing destroys a practice culture more than a sexual harassment case. I mean, it is really a difficult wound is what I like to refer to. You know, it's a wound that you have to almost tend to and care for and get a practice culture back on track. And it's not always what you'd think. I mean, it's not always sort of this creepy man who's giving everybody back rubs. Sexual harassment can come in different forms. You know, it can be quid, you know, the direct harassment, which is, you know, asking for a sexual favor in exchange for a reward or a promotion or even not getting fired. That's sort of the direct harassment. Or you can have a hostile work environment, which is that the behavior is so severe and pervasive and harassing that you cannot function in that environment. I mean, that's a high standard, but those two ways um, are the two ways you can bring up a sexual harassment case. And let me tell you what, if you even have the whispers or the inkling that there's something going on in your practice, nip it in the bud, figure out, you know, have someone, if you don't have an HR department, have a consultant come in that you trust, have, you know, your clinic manager do the investigations if you have to, but really get to the bottom of it. You know, what is being said, what text messages are being sent, what behavior is it that is not conducive with our culture? And try to get that fleshed out early because the more it gets stuffed under the rug and the bigger and bigger that it grows and time goes on, it's really harder to fight. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, you know, we can have sexual harassment coming in many forms. It's not gender specific, but if there's something that's sexualized and inappropriate and it makes your staff feel uncomfortable, you know, many times they're afraid to make a report but you have to make sure that you act in the best interest of your whole company and try to root it out early because trust me, it can be a nightmare and it's really difficult to rebound from those, especially 
if you, you know, keep people hired, you know, it's not like you just fire the alleged bad guys and everybody is happy and has a party. I mean, oftentimes these are conflicts you have to resolve and everyone stays employed there. And that's really hard. That can open yourself up for other issues that we'll talk about in another talk, which is, you know, retaliation and that kind of thing. So, but yes, sexual harassment still going strong. Um, the Me Too movement um, didn't move the needle a ton. It's not like it stopped happening. You know, after that movement occurred, it's still going on. And we have to be really vigilant as employers to make sure that we root it out early. Yes, absolutely. Gosh, Amanda, our time has flown by today and we've barely scratched the surface on human resource complexities. It's always such a pleasure to visit with you. I love hearing your real life stories. How can uh, our listeners learn more? Well, send me an email. I mean, I, you can find me online, hillhealthlaw.com. Um, I'll be happy to send you a summary of this podcast if you want, but I really just love helping doctors. That's my passion, my mission. So I hope that you feel a little bit more empowered today. And it's difficult when we work with people, Heather, because people are not always predictable. You know, there's not always a predetermined outcome on how people will act in the workplace. And it can be really confusing. So just know that you're not alone. Great. Thanks, Amanda. To our listeners, a link to email Amanda is included in the podcast episode description. To claim CME, just click the link to the TMA Education Center and follow the instructions on the CME to go page for this episode. We hope you found our discussion beneficial. Check back for the next Hot Topics episode where Amanda will give guidance on other sticky human resource issues. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit texmed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today.